Good morning. How are y'all doing this morning? I appreciate you uh, braving the snow. Um, my name's Dustin. I'm on staff here at South Point. Um, I get the privilege of working. Is that like super pingy? I get the privilege of working on South, working here at South Point with our worship team, and um, I get an opportunity to teach sometime, and that's what we're doing this morning. And so, if you didn't know, for this entire calendar year, all of 2022, we're reading through the Book of Acts in a series that we're calling Origins. Um, and each week, we open up the Bible here at South Point in an effort to get to know God better and understand. His, his dream for our life, and, and we want to pursue that, and that's why we open this book up. And the reason we're going through the book of Acts is because Acts is really this vivid picture of how the church began. It's this picture of Jesus tasked his, his disciples and this group of people with sharing this news uh, with the entire world, and then he sends the Holy Spirit, and we see the church begin, and it's the church that we're still a part of today. And we believe that God is still working like that and moving through people. And so we want to read through the book of Acts, and we believe that that can give us some direction and where we should be going as a church today. And so last week, uh, Jamie did this amazing job of unpacking Acts chapter 1. And, and where we left off last week, Jesus has just ascended into heaven on a cloud, and his followers have been tasked with spreading this news of what he's done on the cross to the ends of the earth. But before Jesus leaves, he does two things. First, he tells his followers to go and wait for the Holy Spirit before they begin this mission. And then he also opens their minds to fully understanding the Bible. And so for them, it's like this massive puzzle. They've known the Bible. They've studied it throughout their lives, but they've never fully understood it. And now Jesus opens their minds to the truth of Scripture, and they now know that it's all about him. And so these puzzle pieces are coming together, and they're about to start this mission of spreading the good news. And then Jesus is gone. He's ascended into heaven. And what we're about to read uh, is really what they do in these few days while they're waiting on the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have one of these uh, Acts journals, then there should be one in the chair in front of you. And we're going to be reading starting on page 8 in this book. Um, if not, it's Acts chapter 1 starting at verse 12. But before we even get to the passage, there's a question that I need to ask you. And it's an important question because the way you answer this question is really going to kind of frame how you hear these words and read through this passage this morning, and the question uh, is this. Do you want God to guide your life? Do you want God to guide your life? That's a pretty simple question, I think. It's easy enough to understand, but I think it's a question that each and every person who calls themselves a believer, a follower of Jesus, needs to answer. Do you want God to guide your life? Do you want to live the life that God has designed for you, or do you want to live however you want to live? Do you, when you make decisions, are, are you just seeking God's input, his advice to help you make your decision, or are you actually seeking the decision that God would want for your life? Are you quick to submit to God? Are you slow to question him? You know, if God's way happens to like butt up against, crash against your way, and one of them has to go, Whose way is going to go, yours or God's? And, and of course, I think any Christian is going to quickly respond by saying, obviously, God's way, like God first, always. Didn't you read my Instagram bio? Didn't you see my latest Facebook post? I'm obviously God first, but 
when you get really down to it, like what you spend your energy on and your time on and where your heart is and where your mind is, do you want God to guide your life? Because I think inherently the other question that's kind of hidden inside this question is, will you lay down your life to let God guide your life? Will you lay down your life to let God guide your life? Jesus uh, shares with his followers in Matthew chapter 16, he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Read that one more time. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Meaning you can spend your entire life doing things your own way, pursuing the life that you think is going to make you happy. You can go out and try to live your truth and, and, and pursue all the things that this world says is good, but if you do that, that approach to life doesn't deliver. It leads to emptiness, and it leads to you losing your life, a wasted life. But Jesus says if you lay down your life, if you lay down your ways and adopt my ways, if you trade your life and you make me the foundation of your life, then you will experience a life that you could only dream of because most people spend their entire lives chasing freedom and security and fulfillment and satisfaction and love, but so many people end up never really finding those things. But Jesus says if you forfeit this, this earthly approach to life in favor of me, he says he'll give you freedom and satisfaction and fulfillment and identity and security and love all in one foul swoop, but you have to lose your life. Jesus literally laid down his life. He physically laid down his life so he could invite us to metaphorically lay down ours to experience this amazing relationship with him. And so will you lay down your life uh, to let God guide your life? And listen, I, I know it's kind of heavy to start there, like right off the bat, but I think honestly as believers, we have to start here every day. We have to start here every morning. Do I want God to guide my life? And not just start there, but we have to fight throughout the day to stay there because it's so easy to go from seeking the life that God dreams for me to just seeking the life I dream for myself and wanting God's advice from time to time. And I'm sorry, but Jesus didn't come to die on a cross so that you might just listen to his best life tips. He died on a cross to give you an entirely new life, and I think sometimes we miss that or just knowingly ignore that. I only want a relationship with God so long as it doesn't disrupt my life. I only want a relationship with God so long as I don't have to adjust my lifestyle. I only want a relationship with God so long as I don't get called into doing something I'm not ready to do. I only want a relationship with God so long as he only changes the things I want him to change and leaves alone the things that I don't want to change. And the truth is, going back to the passage, going back to these apostles, we don't even think about it, but all of these followers of Jesus, after he ascended into heaven, they could have just walked away and went back to doing what they were doing before. Jesus could have ascended, and they could have been like, well, that was cool. I guess I'm going to head on home now, you know? And but they didn't, and I think for every believer in this room, you can say, but yeah, they, they watch Jesus ascend into heaven. Of course they wouldn't walk away. Of course they're going to follow him. And while you may not have watched Jesus ascend into heaven, if you gave your life to him, you experienced what it was like to go from dead to alive. You experienced this amazing moment when all of a sudden you understood that not only is God real, but he was willing to die so you could have this fulfilling 
impossible relationship with him. And then after you experience that through scripture, he told you the same thing he told these apostles. He said, spend your life pursuing me and telling everyone about this. How are you responding to that? Do you want God to guide your life? You see, these apostles, they, they do. We, we forget that they even had a choice to say no because they're so quick to say yes. There's, there's no discussion about this. There's no post-Jesus ascension meeting of all in favor of doing what Jesus said, say aye. Like, they just, they just start doing it. And this is what the scripture says they did. So again, we're in uh, Acts uh, chapter 1, starting at verse 12. It's uh, page 8 in this Acts journal. And it says this. This is, this is how they responded after Jesus left. It said, then they returned to Jerusalem. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had returned, or when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And so these apostles, they've returned to Jerusalem, and they're waiting on the Holy Spirit to come down. They don't even know what that means, but Jesus told them to go do that, and so that's what they're doing. And did you notice how they're spending their time? Did you notice how they're seeking to allow God to guide their life? It's not a trick question. They're seeking guidance in prayer. It's simple, right? They're seeking guidance in prayer. How do you make decisions? How do you make decisions? If a, if a job opportunity arises, how do you land on whether or not you're going to take it? When a, when a relationship opportunity arises, be it romantic or friendly or business or whatever, how do you decide on if this is a relationship for you? You know, when you decide where you're going to live, how do you decide? Is God a factor at all in your decision-making process? You know, when things go sideways in your life, how do you deal with it? How do you handle tough times? Do you, do you turn to a bottle or some other substance and, and hope that it'll make you forget? Do you open up your phone or your laptop and start looking at things you shouldn't and hope that it'll distract you? Do you just go straight couch potato and start tearing through seasons of this show or that show? I mean, how do you deal with tough times? You know, what do you wake up thinking about? What's the first thing on your mind when you open your eyes? Is it, uh, does your daily anxiety settle itself like firmly back into your chest? Do you hit the snooze button 17 times? Like, how does your day start? And how does your day end? I mean, can you even fall asleep? Do you have any peace or sense of peace before you close your eyes? Do you stay up worrying about things that you can't control anyway? Is your face illuminated by the blue light of your phone as you just mindlessly scroll through other people's lives and opinions? Do you spend any time talking to God? Do you, like, spend any time talking to God? Because, I mean, Jesus, he talked about prayer, and he taught about prayer. He even modeled prayer. Jesus would just disappear into the woods or up a mountainside for hours, sometimes even days without even telling his disciples because Jesus needed to talk to God. He needed to hear from God. Jesus needed community with God. Do you? And now these apostles, they're in this uncertain position of having to wait on some Holy Spirit to show up so they can launch this impossible mission of changing the world. I mean, that seems like a pretty good time to hit the bottle, doesn't it? 
seems like a pretty good time to tune out and distract themselves. Or I mean, maybe if they're serious, if they're like dead serious about this, maybe they should be game planning, like breaking out a map of Israel and Samaria and like the, the entire world and saying we should start, but they're not doing any of that. They're just here talking to God. They're just talking to God. They're just praying. And it doesn't say what kind of prayer, right? Because, you know, there are different kinds. If you didn't know, there are different kinds of prayers. There are are prayers of of adoration and acknowledgement when you just go on and on about how amazing God is. God, you're, you're amazing and you're so powerful. And the love that you have for us, Jesus, you're the way, the truth, and the life, exactly like we just say. And you just keep going on and on about how amazing God is. And then there are prayers of thankfulness when it's literally just nothing but God, thank you so much for everything in my life, my, my life, my wife, my dog, my house, the grace that you give me, even the breath in my lungs. God, every time I breathe, I should be thanking you because every good thing comes from you. Thank you, God. Or prayers of intercession where you're asking God to move, you're asking him to intervene. God, heal my brother. God, please help my spouse to see you for who you really are because we're really hurting right now. God, help me to understand you better. What about prayers of lamenting, which coincidentally sounds a lot like venting because it's when you're just like letting it all spill out. God, what's going on? God, this doesn't make sense to me. God, this hurts. God, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. God, I'm lost. Sometimes you don't even have words. Sometimes you just sit silently or sometimes you just cry. Or what about prayers of confession? God, I, I did it again. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me, God. I, I don't know how to change. God, I can't change. I have all this shame and brokenness, and I don't know what to do with it. Will you please just take it away from me? You know, it, it doesn't say what kind of prayers these apostles are praying. My guess is probably all of the above. I think they just know they need community with God, even if he doesn't offer direct guidance all the time. Even if he doesn't give clear and direct answers all the time, they just need community with him because community with him will change you. you know, I, I, don't, I don't talk to God so he'll do things for me, but talking to God, it, it does things for me. Does that make sense? I don't talk to God so he'll do things for me, but just talking to him, it, it does things for me. My favorite author, C.S. Lewis, he, he said this about prayer. He said, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. Is that you? Is that us as a community? Is God your vending machine or is he your safe haven? Don't get confused. This first part of the passage, it's instructional. We need to be following this model. We need to be seeking guidance and prayer. We need to be bringing it all to God before, during, and after. We need community. We need to need him. And prayer is a great way to get there. And so these apostles, they're praying and praying a lot. Maybe we should be praying and praying a lot. The text goes on in verse 15. It says this. It says, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, so Peter's about to give some instruction about what they're going to do. He says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man, we're talking about Judas Iscariot, the disciple 
who betrayed Jesus for uh, 30 pieces of silver. Uh, This man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. Pretty vivid, right? I hope you didn't have a big breakfast. And uh, it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. And so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become a witness, uh, must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so let's just address the elephant in the room, right, Judas? We learn how things played out for Judas, not great. And uh, you get some really vivid and seeming, seemingly kind of harsh depictions in this passage. But, but what you need to remember, remember we talked about it last week, the author of the book of Acts is Luke, the disciple. And Luke actually also happened to be a doctor. I don't know if you knew that. Luke was a doctor. And uh, it actually shows up in the way he writes. He's very detail-oriented when he writes and, and very descriptive with facts. And so obviously it probably seems over the top to us to describe Judas's death this way, but Luke is reporting the facts. But honestly, Judas's death isn't the most shocking thing in this passage. You know, they're also about to decide who's going to replace Judas as a disciple. Like, they're, they're bringing in someone new. They're not kicking someone off the island. They're bringing someone on. It's like reverse survivor. They're bringing someone new. But that's also not shocking. You know what the most shocking thing in this passage is? Peter starts quoting scripture. Peter, who denied Jesus, who sunk like a rock trying to walk on water like Jesus, who was actually once called Satan by Jesus. Peter is quoting scripture. He's quoting passages from the Old Testament and from the Psalms. This man has never done this in his life, ever. This is Peter's first time ever not only quoting the Bible, but using it to make decisions. And remember we said just a few days ago before Jesus ascended, he opened the apostles' mind to all of the Bible so they could fully understand it. And now days later, Peter is quoting the Bible to help him guide this group. I can almost see Jesus in heaven like, is that Peter quoting scripture? Boy, if I ain't seen it all now. That a boy, Petey. I don't I don't know if he called him Petey. It doesn't sound right now that I said it. But it is what it is. That a boy, Petey. You know, that's shocking. And so first the apostles are seeking guidance in prayer, and now they're doing what? They're seeking guidance in Scripture. And listen, you're, you may be tired of hearing me talk about how important it is to read the Bible. I talk about it a lot. But that's what this passage is talking about, so we're going to talk about it. Sorry, not sorry. You can't have a genuine relationship with God without engaging with this book. Believer, follower of Jesus, this book is how you know him. You don't know him simply by what I or some other teacher tells you about him. If that's the basis by which you know him, you don't really know him. This book is where the rubber meets the road. This is where you get a clear picture of who God is. This is where you get a clear picture of what he's done for you. This is where you can find guidance for any and every area of your life. If you don't believe me, you're wrong. <laughs> or you just haven't looked closely enough. I mean, this, this book even talks about itself. Did you know that? 
This is what the Bible says about itself in the book of Psalms. It says, your word, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. These words light my path. Meaning what? Meaning without reading this book, you are walking around in the dark. And I don't know about you, but I've hit my shin on too many things to keep walking around in the dark. Why would you want to walk around in the dark? This book also says of itself in the book of Hebrews, it says this, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This book is sharp. We're not talking about paper cut sharp. I actually don't think I've ever got a paper cut from reading the Bible. That really has nothing to do with this, but, you know, I figure I'll throw it in there. Just This book is not paper cut sharp. It's spiritually sharp and alive and active. God is trying to reach you in whatever situation you're in right now. He's trying to reach you in your confusion, in your weakness, in your brokenness, in your pride, in your excitement, in your victory. doesn't matter what season of life you're in. God wants to use these words to connect with you in a way that you just can't get on a Sunday morning. If you believe that these are the words of God, why wouldn't you want to hear from him? And then in 2 Timothy, the Bible says this about itself. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Did you know you're not just a child of God, but you're actually a servant of God? You're a kingdom worker. You work for the kingdom of God. God chose good works for you and your life before you were even born. But if you're not reading this book, you're going into that. You're living your life ill-equipped. My freshman basketball coach, he used to always say we did things willy-nilly or haphazardly or helter-skelter. He loved those words. And they're funny phrases until the representations of your life. And what we've been called to do is way too important to try to do it on our own. We can't do it on our own. Are you kidding me? We need these words. And so Peter is using this brand new scripture knowledge to guide in his decision making. And they don't even have the Holy Spirit yet. We do. Can you just imagine what God might be able to do through you if you'll lean in even just a little? And if you don't have Bibles, we have Bibles. We'll give you one. Go back to Connection Point. It's a free Bible app on your phone. But we need to be seeking guidance in Scripture. We need to be hearing from him. And that brings us to the end of this passage and how they're going to decide how they're going to replace Judas. It says this in verse 23. It says, And they put forward to Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Eustace, has three names, kind of confusing, and Matthias. So they put forward two to potentially replace Judas, Joseph and Matthias, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas has turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And so we have Matthias. He's, he's jumping in. He's going to be the new guy. But I don't want to just glaze over what actually just happened. They did what to decide who was going to be an apostle? Well, first they prayed. You have the literal words of uh, the actual script of what they prayed, you know, amen, right? But then they did what? They cast lots. They cast lots, which if you don't know what that means, 
It means they kind of left it up to chance. It means that they could have been rolling dice, the most typical way of casting lots. Or sometimes they'd pull names out of a jar. Or sometimes they would draw straws. That's how they decided who was going to be the next apostle. And I don't know, that seems kind of random, right? Like maybe they didn't give this decision enough weight. Like we're talking about who's going to be an apostle, like early Christian leadership right before they launched this worldwide church and they're out here playing Yahtzee. You see, this is a moment where scriptural context is, is pretty important. This moment's also observational. It's not instructional. That's meaning uh, Luke is telling us what they did, but that not, doesn't necessarily mean that that's what we're going to do. We obviously weren't rolling dice after Tanner left to see who was going to step into the lead pastor role. You know, but before they had the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who helps us and leads us in decision-making, and the Holy Spirit hasn't descended yet, remember that, but before the Holy Spirit was here, this practice of casting lots actually wasn't that uncommon in discerning what God would want. You can actually find the practice of casting lots in the books of Numbers, Joshua, 2 Samuel, Leviticus, Nehemiah. It's a very Old Testament, pre-Holy Spirit way of doing things. And then for the record, once the Holy Spirit comes, you don't ever see this practice of casting lots again. But they do it here, and it lands on Matthias. But to me, hidden inside this kind of seemingly random and reckless moment of choosing a new apostle is one massive truth. And I think it's a truth that we're going to see play out in the entire book of Acts. And I think we're still seeing it play out in the church today. And this truth is that God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. God doesn't call those who are equipped. He equips those who he calls, meaning what? Well, I'm not going to say that it didn't matter who the lot fell on and who stepped into this apostle role, but, you know, it kind of didn't matter. They're not main characters. And I'm not going to downplay the importance of having the right people in the right roles. That's important. But when it comes to kingdom work, when it comes to doing what God has called us to do, God is less frequently looking for people with skilled hands and almost always looking for people with raised hands. Meaning God is more often than not looking for people who have a heart for him and who just want to be a part of what he's doing to help everyone experience his unconditional love through Jesus. And it doesn't matter if you think you're ready. It doesn't matter if you think you've done too many wrong things. It doesn't matter if you think you're not skilled enough. God has been using not readies and failures and not good enough since the beginning. I mean, you can look at God's track record throughout the Bible and, and see all the ways in which he's used broken, not ready people for his purpose. I mean, Noah, you know Noah? He got drunk a lot. Abraham, he was old, literally almost as old as dirt. Jacob was a liar. Joseph was a victim of abuse almost his entire life. Moses was a murderer, could barely talk. Gideon, really interesting story, he was a coward. David was a murderer and had multiple affairs. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. Jonah ran away from God. John the Baptist, JTB, he ate bugs. Peter, Peter, the one leading this group right now, he denied even knowing Jesus barely a month ago. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Martha had anxiety. She worried about everything. And Paul was a murderer. And Lazarus was dead. So, Miss me with the excuses, all right? You don't get to decide you're not qualified. God will equip you because 
He has called you. And each and every believer in this room has been called, if no one told you that. And here at South Point, we're not a qualified and perfect bunch. And I'm not talking about just leadership, but as a community, we're broken. We're misfits. No offense, but we are. We're lost, and we're messed up, and we've messed up, and we'll probably mess up again. But guess what? What distinguishes us is that we're fighting to make sure that our identity is not in the junk that broke us, but it's in the one who put us together. Our identity at this church is Jesus. He's the one who saved us. He's the one who started this good work in each and every one of us, and he's going to finish it. And he's not asking you to get your act together. He's just asking you to be a part of what he's doing, and so will you be a part of it? And just for clarity's sake, um, just for clarity's sake, this is not a call for you to start serving at South Point. I'm not going to plug our serving teams. That's not what this is. You know, we obviously, we love to have people serving and connected, but that's not what this is. This isn't about building up South Point Church. This goes way beyond that. You know, from the, the moment Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, at the beginning of the Bible, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, from that moment, God has been steadily working to reconcile everything back to himself, to fix all of it. He's fixing all of it. He's literally making all things do. And if you've said yes to Jesus, you were made new. You became a part of this redemption story made possible only by Jesus' death and resurrection. You're new. Lucky you. But God's not finished yet. And you can look around the world and see that God's not finished yet. He's still reconciling the world to himself. He's still reaching the spiritually dead and breathing life into them. The story's not over. There's work to be done still. But I think where we get confused is that we think that God has put it on us to do this. We think that we're out here doing this for God. Psych. We're not. That's not it. God hasn't called us to do it because we can't do it. Just like these apostles, he, he hasn't tasked us with saving the world. Instead, he's invited us to just be a part of his story as he saves the world. Meaning God doesn't want you to go try to save your best friend. He just wants you to be a part of the story as he saves them. And God isn't expecting you to save your kids. You can't save your kids, but God wants you to be a part of the story as he saves them. This is, this is God's story. This is about Jesus. This isn't about us. This isn't about just serving once a month and hoping some people walk into this brick-and-mortar building and hear something impactful. This goes deeper than that. We have to begin to seriously take, take for, for truth that God is actively trying to use every person who said yes to him and bring them into this rescue story. Bring us, bring us into this rescue story that he's writing in. You know, it can't be about South Point Church because there are going to be people who will never step into church. There are going to be people who will never listen to what I say or what Jamie says or any other pastor. And, and even if they did, like, our, our words aren't going to carry the same weight that yours do. God wants you to be a part of that story. And if we as a community took that seriously, like, if we believe that each and every person was equipped to do this and wanted to do this and had people in their life and they were willing to talk about this and just be a part of God's rescue story. I mean, could you imagine what God could do? Not what we could do, but, but imagine what God could do with a church like that. Imagine what God could do with a church that prayed just because they needed community with God. And, and, and a church 
that opened this book because they were fully dependent on what God has to say to us and they refused to walk around in the dark. And a church that believes that God has actually called and equipped everyone who said yes to him, not just pastors and leaders. You know, I, I used to think pastors were a really big deal until I became one. And then I was like, wow. I don't even want to say they're normal. We're not even normal. And if this depends on us, uh, God's not just using pastors and church leaders. He wants to use everyone. And if everyone will be a part of that, if everyone will depend on him. Man, I want to be a part of a church like that. Actually, I don't want to be a part of a church if it isn't like that. And you shouldn't either. This is his story. And I think he's just inviting us to be a part of it. And so do you want God to guide your life? Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that this all depends on you and it does not depend on us. Even our relationship with you doesn't depend on us. You're the one who made a way. You're the one who chose us. None of this is possible without you. And we understand that there's work to be done. We understand we can look around the world and see broken, hurting people. We even feel some of that brokenness, God. But we understand that you're making all things new. You're fixing it. And one day we're going to be with you forever, everyone who said yes to you. But in the meantime, there's work to be done. And this is your rescue story. God, I pray each and every person in this room takes it seriously. I know we all have self-esteem issues. I know we all think we're not good enough. And what's true, we're not, but you are. And so, God, I just pray that people are taking that seriously, that they understand that there are people that you've put in their life. God, you've strategically placed us around people who desperately need to hear who you are and what you've done. And, God, I just pray that we're bold enough to accept that and believe it and step into it, that we're a church that wants you to guide our lives. I pray that we're a church that depends on you in prayer, that prayer is our first move, that we're coming to you with everything before we start moving. God, I pray that we fully depend on your word, that we don't move, we don't move forward without seeking your word and your truth, that it's guiding everything that we do. God, I pray that that is our identity as a community, a church that is fully dependent on you and does not move unless you're a part of it, God, that what you could do with that is, I can't even imagine, but I want to be a part of it. We love you so much. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus that made all of this possible. We're thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit who is actively guiding us and teaching us and using us. And we're just thankful to have this relationship with you in the first place. You are amazing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.